You're listening to This and That with me, Angus Mitchell, a podcast series where I'll be talking to students and past students like everything about their dissertation and general uni experience. On this episode, I'll be talking to author and leading academic Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, the title of his PhD thesis being Women and Veiling in the Ancient Greek World. But also I discovered at that point they were also wearing face veils as well. And this was a real remarkable thing. I'd never expected to find this. Um, um, And that's really fascinating, actually, how it was received there. Um, And I'm sure in other places you can tell what's going on in the country on how the research is received. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Obviously, you've gone on to do so much more work. And uh, we won't discuss your book too much because, you know, people should go and read it themselves. Um, But but it it is so fascinating. That's when the gems come out as well. That's when you find a text that nobody's looked at before. You know, and I found lots of those, I'm glad to say. Loads and loads. Eureka moment. (laughs) Yeah, quite literally, Eureka. It it really was that. You're listening to This and That. Hello and welcome back to This and That, episode 10. And today I am joined by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones. How are you? I'm very good, and it's a real pleasure to be here. To be honest, in uh, in these days of lockdown, it's just nice to have another human voice in the room sometimes. <laughs> I know, so I know. Welcome to you as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think we are all getting a bit Zoom tired, but when it's something so interesting, I'm extremely excited. Yeah, I think it's great. To, I mean, Zoom is a is a wonderful facilitator in many ways. You know, I've been visiting conferences all around the world over the last couple of weeks, which I wouldn't have done in reality, of course. So there are good things about it as well, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's just the, the, the endless admin that goes on on Zoom. I think that's that's the thing I don't like. Yeah, it, it's kept us connected. This is the first time I've had a professor on the show, so it oh. is an absolute pleasure. And um, we, we, we've discussed earlier that you do have so much resources and so much research in your art, countless articles and books. Um, yes. This is Dis and That, where we talk about dissertations. Are you yeah. happy to be talking about your dissertation today? Yeah, back in the olden times. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> you have to That's... cast yourself back to the year 2000 when 2000. I submitted my, my PhD. Yeah, that was it's in 2000. I actually kind of did my, um, my master's and my PhD quite late, really, you know. I did my, um, my master's in Cardiff in 1997. Um, no, I beg your pardon, 1995. I did it part-time over two years. I funded myself and I got a distinction for it, which was wonderful. Uh, and on the back of that, in those days, I mean, you know, it, it's hardly believable now, but I got um, a full grant then from the school of, uh, as it was at the time, Share, um, the, the, then um, to do a full-time PhD, which I did then over over three years. I submitted in just under three years. So in uh, in 2000, I, I submitted and, and was was doctored uh, in 2000. And did you have, um, I'm not aware, did you stay at Cardiff and then get your first job at Cardiff uh, University? No, I, did, I didn't. My first job uh, on the back of the PhD, just before I finished it, and they took a kind of risk, was actually with the Open University in the classical studies department there. And from that, then I was down in Exeter for two years, um, sort of on temperature contracts, which is a, a typical sort of trajectory, typical line of doing things at the time. And then uh, in 2003, I got um, a permanent post in Edinburgh. So I was in Edinburgh for 13 years, which I loved very much indeed. Um, And latterly in Edinburgh, I became the professor of uh, Greek and Iranian studies. And then uh, five years ago, I came back down to Cardiff to take up the chair in ancient history here, which, you know, is, is complete ring cycle. It really is. So, and, it's, yes. and it's wonderful to be back. I'm very proud of, of being a, a Cardiff graduate and, and now of being uh, Cardiff staff as well. It's, it's still a job that I love. And the best part of the whole job is this really. It's, it's the interaction with the students. You know, uh, if we were to take away that, you know, it's the cold face work that I love more than anything else. I love my research and I love talking to my students. It's just the other stuff that goes around it. Well, <laughs> today today's perfect for you then, because we're packaging the two together, talking to me about your research. So should we get into it then? We're talking Absolutely. about your PhD today, which yes. uh, you finished in 2000. What in was 2000. the title of your PhD okay. thesis? It's rather dull and earnest. I wanted something smarter, but my supervisor <laughs> said, no, keep it real. So it's called Women and Veiling in the Ancient Greek World women unveiling in the ancient Greek world. I'd say that's pretty interesting. I Because I know sometimes with PhD thesis, they're so niche that the title is about a thousand words anyway, you know? Yeah, so I think, yeah. I think you've done the job pretty well there. I'm oh, interested. Yeah, I'm well, sure it, a lot it, of the it, listeners you know, are as well. 
yeah, it, it does what it says on the tin, um, <laughs> essentially. So the idea, so what this it looks at really is the issue of the veiling of women, so the covering of women um, in the period about 900 BC to about 200 CE. And really it, it was the very first investigation of the use of the veil in the Greek world. And I did it, I mean, if you think about the world in which this, this um, PhD came out of, so don't forget, you know, 2001, a year after this, there were the attacks on America, you know, by Al-Qaeda, and throughout the, the, the late 1990s, of course, the, the East-West tensions were getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I became really fascinated by the, the use, because as a kind of gender historian at heart, um, I became really fascinated by the modern media's use of the representation of women um, in the media um, from the Middle East and how ubiquitous they were being shown as veiled and oppressed and or as veiled fundamentalists, you know, sort of gun toting and all this kind of stuff. And these images were just like barraging me at the time. And I thought, well, you know, is what what is the veil then? You know, what's it all about? I mean, is it really simply a matter of oppression? Why are women choosing to wear the veil? in the Middle East, you know, and as a, as a symbol of strength as well. So I became really fascinated by the, the images, the modern images that were pouring out of, of the media. Um, and during the, the latter part of my, uh, my master's, so in 1998 into 90, uh, sorry, sorry, into 1996 into 97, um, I did a sort of extended essay and then my dissertation actually it was on um, women in Homer and one of the things I looked at there was the use of veiling in Homer, uh, because I realized that, that Homer draws on the image of the veil constantly and for different reasons as well. So for instance, you know, status was being defined by Homer um, through the use of the veil. So the women who veil the most conspicuously in Homer were always the high class women. I mean, Andromache, Helen, um, Penelope, all of these, otherwise the, the sort of servant girls, this kind of thing, didn't veil at all. So there was a social dimension going on to all of this. And I thought, well, okay, what's the world in which this comes out of? So I started looking at um, some, some laws from the Near East. And I discovered that in Assyria, there were actually laws written around about 1000 BCE about the use of the veil in Assyrian society, which legislated that only women of the upper classes could veil that slave girls, that prostitutes were not allowed to veil. And if they were discovered veiling, they would be punished. I mean, they would have their heads shaved and, and tar and pitch would be poured over their hair, okay? Now the question was who, was, who was really going for this law? Who was trying to uphold this law? Well, it's no matter really to men. It must have been to other women because upper class women, elite women were actually safeguarding their own positions by kind of shopping on these other women who, who yeah. were daring to veil, you know? So actually there was a far more, I discovered straight away, there was a far more kind of interesting discourse going on about the veil than simply it is about oppression. Yeah. Um, and with that kind of stuff in the, in, the, in the background of the Near East, I then applied it to, to the Homeric texts and there was a lot to do. So I wrote my whole, the, uh, my whole um, master's dissertation on, on women in veiling in Homer. By the time I'd finished that, you know, and I, I'd got it marked and I had a really great feedback, um, I thought, look, there's a PhD here to do on, yeah. on veiling generally in the Greek world, you know, where does this, where does this take us? What does it tell us about the status of women, not just in Athens, but generally across the Greek world as well? So what I did was I, you know, I, I pulled all of the evidence I could find together. So this is um, all the literary evidence. So this, you know, from, um, drama, historiography, but also from inscriptions, whatever it would be, all the masses of um, iconographic representation. So terracottas, sculptures, um, uh, vase paintings, and then a lot of anthropology as well, because I really needed to read this stuff through the lens of a, an anthropologist, which was kind of a part, in a way, part of the most interesting part of the journey, because, you know, it was like learning a new discipline um, as I was going as well. And then I was wanted to root it in, in modern day conceptions of the veil and how it is being used and challenged, you know? I was gonna um, ask actually, because obviously it's really interesting hearing about why people choose their particular topic. And it's obvious that the way the media represented the East and the veil and well, obviously the hijab uh, in Islam um, is a, a huge part of what we're talking about. I'm sure that we'll discuss um, because 
I was going to ask if you did bring back this kind of reason for doing it into your dissertation itself. Oh, um, completely. Comparing completely. it to the modern time and the modern perception. And it is absolutely fascinating just from the off, hearing from your introduction, hearing <laughs> about um, the, the how powerful they were and the legislation that came um, 1000 BC from Assyria. Um, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So we kind of understood why you're doing this. And the you once you've kind of done your master's and you've unlocked this huge topic that am i right in saying you said you the kind of first person to be looking yeah, the first it. person to look at this the first person but, so where do you begin um, with all of well, this well the the first okay so the first thing i did i first of all wanted to think okay what i'm seeing here is a thing called a veil okay so i had to define my terms all right yeah. because of course you know it's it's a it's an english word we can compare it to the french voile or whatever but um you know it, it's it's a loaded word for us okay so when we talk about veil, what are people thinking of? Are they talking about something that goes across the face? Are they talking something that goes across the head? Are they talking about something that covers the body? So I had to define my terms, first of all. And because um, I, you know, at that point, I didn't know what the Greek terms were. I hadn't started that research yet. Um, what I realized was that I needed to go into Arabic and other Middle Eastern sources for that, okay? So I discovered, of course, the word veil is, is meaningless in a, in a Middle Eastern context at all. So they talk about niqab or shawl or um, burqa or chador or whatever it is. All of these things have, have you know, specific meanings as to the style of the garment, as to how it is worn as well. So, you know, um, it's like Eskimos and snow, okay? So, you know, yeah. <laughs> you have loads and loads of names for something which is so familiar to you. So the next thing I wanted to do was to try to look up um, as many Greek terms as I could find for veil as well. And I discovered there were many, very many indeed. Um, two of the most uh, common were kaluptra, uh, uh, but the most common and the most fascinating was uh, a word called kredemnon, which means a veil, but it also means a city wall or a wall as well. Okay. So, you know, what, what you do therefore with, with, you know, when you, when you look at um, etymology, you know, the, the linguistics, you begin to see patterns because of course words matter, right? In every civilization words matter. So you see um, things growing up about that. So for instance, um, the word kaluptra, which is, you know, just basically head veil, okay? But it was also a word that the Greeks used for a stopper that went on a bottle, okay? So you, you put the, a, uh, this sort of like a, a cloth over the top of a bottle and it would preserve anything that's inside. Now, in, in terms of the Greek world, the Greeks thought that women were miasmic, that they kind of polluted society, okay? So when you had intercourse with a woman, for instance, the idea was that um, what, what would pour out of her was a kind of miasma, okay? I mean, oh, it's wow. a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful concept, you know? And, and I think Greece was probably the most misogynistic society of antiquity, without a doubt in my, in my mind. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to look into this, you know? Um, so there we have this thing, a veil that covers a woman's head and sometimes can be pulled across her face. It's like a stopper to a bottle to, to stop um, impurities coming out. Okay, so that says something, doesn't it, straight away? <laughs> and then the other word then, sorry, kredemnon, this wall. Mm. So literally a woman is walled in within her veil. There's a, an amazing moment in, in the Iliad um, that you know, I'd studied for my masters, where when Hector, the great hero of Troy, is killed by Achilles, his wife Andromache is at home and she's weaving, being a very good wife. She hears this news and she throws off her veil. She throws off her credemnon, and that's a great symbol. So as she throws off her credemnon, her veil she's suddenly uncovered. It's like the walls of Troy are falling, quite literally oh, her right. veil yeah. and the walls fall at the same time, you know? And she is unprotected. She's game for whatever abuse the Greeks will now put on her. So like a, like a city that's going to be invaded, she is like that too. So there was a deep, deep resonances in these words, you know, that um, without, you know, if I hadn't done that kind of research, then I would never have found all the symbolism that lies behind these words. So that was a starting point um, for me. And the other thing um, I did really in the first year of my, my thesis was to look at as much scholarship as I possibly could from the 18th century right up to the, to the present day um, on commentaries and so forth. How, what were people 
saying about these passages that I was discovering, okay? And one how thing have they been kept... interpreted in the past, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. precisely, you know? Um, and how, how do people name garments and all this kind of stuff? And what I quickly realized is that no scholar ever used the word veil, okay? Oh, right. So they would say um, her shawl, her mantle, her head covering. And so they I wouldn't even use the head. specific terms. No, they no. would just well, we've go around it. Yeah. So I, so I started calling this the V word. You know, why are they so afraid <laughs> of the V word? Yeah. And I came to the conclusion it's because the, the presence of the veil for many scholars straight away made the Greeks less European. Okay. It suddenly put them into the world of the Middle East, which is the world where I think they are most comfortable, you know, in an honor shame society that ancient Greece was. Um, so that's, that was a, a big revelation for me as well. And that essentially my, my introduction to the thesis was an attack really on scholars who have refused to acknowledge um, what's going on there. And of course, it was heightened by the late 1990s because of this Islamophobia um, that was going on uh, in the world as well. So Western one of the elitism, openings, basically. Oh, completely. You Gatekeeping know, I, the Greeks. That's right, absolutely. And that whole myth of Greek supremacy, um, the idea, you know, the, the, the mythology of Marathon and Thermopylae and freedom of the West. So how could we be revealing our women um, in, in ancient Greece, you know, the center of democracy, when um, veiling is something that, that the, the barbarian Arabs and other Middle Easterners do to their women, you know? Fascinating, We couldn't yeah. go anywhere near it. Uh, one of the opening images I use in, in my thesis, and there's a lot of images in it, um, is a, a fantastic image that was made in 1998, I think it was, of the Statue of Liberty wearing a full burqa, you wow. know, because it, it represented the terror that America and the West generally was feeling about the Islamic sort of onslaught, you know, and onslaught and, and what would happen to our democracy. And again, it was the veil that was used, you know, this kind of shorthand for terror, really. And now I'm saying in my thesis, well, look, open your eyes, because the Greeks, these so-called Democrats, you know, the Democratic fathers, um, were veiling their women. The women were part of this, this veil culture um, that, that, you know, um, still goes on, of course, in, in, in the Middle East and in India and in places that we now tend to think of as, you know, third world or developing. Um, so this was a shakeup. And um, I was, you know, I, I spoke at conferences about this kind of thing uh, because I, I have always believed, and this is my recommendation to anybody who's undertaking a PhD, um, try to speak regularly at conferences because it's a really good way to try out uh, your, your thoughts. Um, and I'm glad to say that this was well received by a, a majority of people, but not by all. There were some um, ancient historians and classicists who were entrenched still in the idea that, uh, that you know, Greece was this, this, this fount of, of freedom and that um, veiling had, had, had no issue, no, no, no place uh, in Greek society. And that really galvanized me to, to, to carry on with a PhD and think, okay, I will now show yeah. Uh, on what on how deep a level this garment, this very simple garment, which you know, if you think about it, has no stitching, has no hems, has no seams, you know, it's it's the simplest thing, yeah. a piece of cloth, all right, what it can do to a society yeah. and a culture. And it's and its influence on the way history has been perceived as well. I think it's so fascinating that you've brought up um the elitism basically of archaeology ancient history uh -huh. that we can see from the 1800s basically where it became a really um accessible no not accessible but um a widely studied yes, um absolutely. humanity and um yeah. i think it is it's so important to raise especially now um with the movements of trying to kind of unlock the real history you know what was really yeah. going on let's get rid of those pretenses that we've been told by really wealthy white men That's right. that have been, That's that right. have been gatekeeping yeah. the, the studies and i think it's absolutely fascinating work that you've been doing and I'm really excited to hear all this evidence that you did find to kind of tell them what it was really like. <laughs> all right well the the next you know all of this is kind of happening simultaneously you know that I was I was researching different things and different files for different things so the other thing I started to do was to read the anthropology that sat behind veiling I was really interested in women's experiences of veiling and why they do it okay how did they feel about it and of course this is the thing that really was key to unlocking the use of the veil in the ancient world for me because let's face facts the the texts themselves the ancient greek texts and the images do not talk about the veil okay they, they simply don't why is that 
Well, because it's a norm, okay? They, they, the Greek sources don't talk about, you know, veiled women unless they unveil. So it's only when they kind of disregard the norms, they break convention, that they get mentioned in the text. So that says something about it, but that still doesn't give me really access to how women might have used the veil. And one thing I realized very early on from reading studies of, of brilliant anthropologists, a lot of female anthropologists working in the field in places uh, like the Sinai among the Bedouin um, in Northern uh, India and Pakistan was that the veil has a multivalence of meanings. It, it's, it's simply not just about um, oppression. It was actually a way in which women could communicate their own status, their own desires. There was a complete language of veiling, which went beyond just the garment itself. It's the way in which the garment was used. Who did a woman veil for? She could show respect to a man, but she could also completely disrespect a man if she doesn't veil in front of him, you know? She had the power um, with it. Yeah. She, in a way, she kind of encodes a thing. And also the other thing I realized as well is that in a veil society, there has to be a kind of give and take on both sides as well. And a brilliant um, feminist uh, Islamic historian called Fatima Manisi really defined this for me. Uh, when I read her work, you know, my eyes really opened. She talked about something called the harem of the mind, which is about how in traditional Islamic societies, male and female are supposed to take with them this sense of propriety, I suppose, okay? So for instance, if um, a woman is working in the fields, okay, and she's not wearing a veil because it's impractical. She's, you know, she's, she's working hard and a man happens to come by. The onus is not on her to feel ashamed and cover herself with whatever she can find or like disappear. The onus is on him to turn his back, to give her mm -hmm. honor. So a lot of this was bound up with honor and shame as well. Okay, which are the two, in my opinion, the, the, the real nexus of what ancient Greece was all about. It was an honor-shame community. And we really see this, this, this idea that they have of eidos, which is shame, but also the, the, the feeling of being shamed, okay? Now, within that, then, I, again, I was looking at the, the anthropology, right? The veil, for instance, allows a woman in a very tight patriarchal society to negotiate spaces which she would not be allowed to do unless she was veiled, all right? So, for instance, um, we see, this was the time of the Taliban, don't forget as well, in Afghanistan, okay? So I was able to draw on a lot of research there. So women were able to go to the market, they were able to go to social events um, under the cover of the veil in a way that they could never have done beforehand. And what I found really interesting was in, in the research that I was doing was that as Greek society progressed, you know, as we go through the ages, the veil goes from a, you know, a very elite garment under Homer to a far more sort of democratic garment, it's bizarre mm -hmm. to say. Everyday garment. Yeah, everyday every, garment. Yeah. And by the time we get to the Hellenistic period, which is when, interestingly, women were most conspicuously veiled, okay, so they tended to wear at that time um, a large sort of um, covering which went over the head down to the feet and sort of wrapped around them. But also I discovered at that point, they were also wearing face veils as well. And this was a real remarkable thing. I'd never expected to find this. In the Greek text, they're called tegidion. Tegidion means a little roof. So literally it was a kind of like a kerchief that you tie around the forehead and you would tie it, you would pull, pull it, push it back over the head. So it would sit on top of your head like a, a little roof, okay? It would, it would cause of that. But then you would flip it forward over the face. It had eye holes. Oh, wow. So the woman was completely covered in a very kind of, very, very sort of, you know, Afghani style, really. Yeah. This was really popular in the third and the second century BC, which is just the moment in our Greek sources when women become more conspicuous. In the Hellenistic period, we see them shopping, we see them going to um, art galleries, we see them going to festivals. And I suddenly realized, my goodness me, the veil is giving them freedom of movement, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, far, really more ever, wow. far more than I'd ever, ever um, anticipated. So the more covered, the more free. That was a real, um, juxtaposition really you know polar opposites I, I didn't expect that at all so there it was now of course you know people argued with me against that but 
um, I stuck to my guns and I still believe that that is essentially the case. But the other, you know, the dark side of the stuff that I discovered as well was um, the fact that, you know, this, this honor-shame nexus that existed in Greece, as it does in the, much of the Middle East today, um, also forced women, of course, to conform as well. And that the punishments for non-conformity um, could be horrific because in the Greek world, a woman carried the family honor quite literally in her body, okay? Yeah. So she was the, the thing with that, you know, a, a father, her kurios, her guardian, um, held in a way as, as his prized possession because of course she had monetary value, okay? By marrying her off into another family, another oikos, um, you know, that's the way that, that family unions were made, that wealth was brought into the family. So she had to be chased, she had to be guarded. So the sexual guarding of women was kind of then enforced by the veil. So it frees them, but it also encloses yeah. them, all right? So what we discovered was that, you know, if a woman breaks the standards of the norms, if, if she breaks the nomoi, the customs of society, such as unveiling in a public space, laughing too loudly, shouting, yeah. okay, Greek men came down on them really harshly. I mean, really harshly. Um, so um, I did some primary primary um, work on this for the thesis, but actually I followed it up in, a, in an article several years later, which was on domestic abuse in ancient Greece, which again is something which you just don't, you know, people don't talk about in ancient Greece. You know, they don't really write about it. Mm. Why? It's because it's the norm. And every now and then you find a, a throwaway line which says so much. So, for instance, um, in Aristophanes' comedy, Lysistrata, the women are sitting together chatting and one of them says, oh, you know, when my husband comes home from the Agora, he's in a foul mood very often. And I say to him, you know, how did it go today? And he'll just turn around and he'll slap me over the face. Or another um, example would be um, Alcibiades when he when his wife was trying to leave him to divorce him, she walked through the Agora and he rushed after her, threw off her veil and dragged her by the hair um, through, the, uh, through the city streets. Um, there is a, um, a, a love story, bizarrely, which opens with the image of the, um, the, the, the heroine, Kaleroi, um, running towards her, her lover. She's delighted to see him, but he's been listening to gossip about her, even though she's innocent. And he kicks her in the stomach with such ferocity that he leaves her for dead. That's the opening of a love story. Mm. What we find, you know, in, in these sources are, are, are tiny references to uh, a grotesque norm um, that still goes on in our societies today, east or west, regardless of wealth, regardless of, of education, unfortunately. Um, and all of this, of course, is endorsed by the veil as well. So the, the dichotomies I began to discover were really remarkable as a garment that both um, liberated and oppressed women simultaneously. Mm. I was going to and, ask in terms of evidence, because obviously we're discussing how uh, these things that you came by, um, obviously with garments, I'm sure iconography um, was a huge part of the evidence, seeing how they were portrayed in their own artwork and sculpture, um, mm. but and also I'm sure on gravestones and whatnot but um in terms of these stories of domestic abuse for those that maybe listening don't understand what where you're where, where you're getting this information from is this from primarily plays or they came from all, all sorts of sources okay there, there was nothing i didn't look at there's nothing i didn't limit myself to and when you do uh, you know when you do a sort of a socio-cultural study like this you have to you have to cast your net very, very wide. So, you know, I kind of realized that when I did my master's on, on veiling in Homer. Okay, well, if I do veiling in Homer, that's really neat and it's nice and confined and it's very, you know, yeah. easy to digest, but what is it telling me? It tells me I nothing beyond, picture. you know, exactly. So if you're going to do a cultural social history, then you have to, you have to be bold. You have to use everything. And I did, I used everything from, um, 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 you know, um, Plato, Aristotle through to comics like Aristophanes, um, uh, vase paintings, everything, absolutely yeah, everything. Yeah. There were gravestones I used, there are laws I used, 
absolutely everything. I wanted to get to the heart of it. And, and I'm you sure know, the, you would have had to have gone to these primary sources because, like you said at the beginning, the amount of information kind of skewed by how it's been yeah. studied before. You yeah. had to see for yourself where were they getting this information from. And obviously that's, it enlightened exactly you to right. something that was really going on. That's exactly right. So sometimes, you know, um, I realized historians were leaving out evidence, you know, mm -hmm. dismissing it, or they were skewing it to such a way that it became almost... Um, unfeasible you know i mean it, yeah. it, you know the, the translation didn't say what it actually said in the text wow. i was also i must admit i was also really galvanized by the work of of one well no no let me let me say there were three people no i'm going to take that back there were four people um <laughs> whose whose work you know i couldn't have done this without the first of course was 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 i was lucky to have two phd supervisors um, two kind of first supervisors, not even a first and a, and a secondary supervisor. I had uh, Nick Fisher, who was the chair of ancient history in Cardiff at the time, and a man of outstanding intellect, and one of the you know one of my best friends in the world now. Over that over that time, I worked with him. You know, we we developed such a strong rapport. His work um, was on hubris, this idea of you know not knowing your place in Greek society. So he was absolutely. Um, embroiled in the sort of socio-cultural history of Greece, uh, which was fantastic for me, you know, and, and he got a lot out of my work on the veil as well, you know, because we were kind of locking subjects in many ways, you know. And it being the first yet, of its time, I'm sure he's very interested. Oh, he was he was very excited by the whole prospect of what was going on. Um, and the other then was, was, was my other supervisor, Sean Lewis, uh, who's now in St Andrews, and I've just published a book with Sean, in fact, on animals in antiquity. So, you know, we've had a long long working relationship as well and her expertise and she was working at that time um, almost entirely on the iconograph iconography of women in vase painting so that was perfect for me as well so I had these two amazing sounding boards okay then beyond that um, outside of Cardiff there was Sue Blundell Dr Blundell who um, had just published a book on women in ancient Greece this was a time when really women's studies late 80s to the mid 90s was really properly taking off um, for the first time in, 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 in classics. You know, they'd been ostracized for generations. I, you know, I remember once reading um, a book published in 1962 by Ballsden on Roman women. And it said in the introduction, um, my readers might enjoy um, to take the opportunity to look at the life of some Roman women in the hours of leisure between looking at politics and warfare. You know, that's, that's how gender <laughs> yeah. studies were thought of at the time. Wow. So Sue Brandel was doing some really great work on women. And again, we just gelled, you know, and she found um, this, this really interesting. She challenged me a lot. Sue Brandel really challenged me a lot on- to, the best way of getting- Oh, the by best far, by far, yeah. yeah. You know, where I was seeing veiling, she was seeing unveiling and all of this kind oh, well, of stuff. Yeah. You know? So it was great to have these debates. And then the final, uh, the final person, and in many respects, the, the most fundamental to me um, was Professor Douglas Cairns. At the time he was at Glasgow and now he's the chair of, um, of classics in Edinburgh and so been my colleague for a long time as well. Um, his book on Eidos, so honour and shame in ancient Greece, was the, the, the cornerstone really of my work, you know. Um, he, he basically did a, 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 a linguistic and cultural exploration of this concept of shame in the ancient Greek world. I mean, it's one of the great books really of on cultural history um, of the last century, I, I would say. Um, and he was extremely encouraging. And I'll never forget when I read, because uh, he'd given me some of the, the, the pre-publication drafts to read. And when I read in his introduction, you know, he said, much can be expected of Lloyd Llewellyn Jones's forthcoming work on the veil. I thought, oh my God, it, it's happening, you know, I yeah. am being taken seriously That's on this. That's brilliant, yeah. And, and that was a, an enormous boost. And, and really, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to Douglas for um, for that and, and the belief he put in it. And in fact, you know, over the years, he's applied my theories to his work and I've applied my theories to his work uh, as well. And that's, a, you know, that's the wonderful part about the PhD experience, which I say to my students all the time as well, is that nat natural moment that happens when the student becomes the master you know, the student becomes the expert on the subject and it happened really holistically with me and Douglas and Sue and Nick and Sean as well and it's and it's a wonderful thing and I I, I love it when it happens with my students as well yeah, you know they, they now are telling me 
what what's going things. on. I, I think that's such a great point because obviously you go from being a master's student where you are, there is a big step up obviously from undergrad to master's, but then that leap to PhD to being it's, it's the kind of fourth runner of your what what you're studying you know you you're yeah. no longer reliant on these books and countless sources that can tell you no. everything you have to be the one like you said yeah. going to these primary sources and discovering these new things which i think yeah. is, it must be an amazing feeling and to get that mentioned in the book and to it is it was it was fantastic these academics yeah precisely you're being taken seriously you know and and from a kind of you know ingenue going to conferences i was being asked to go to conferences you know and and uh, you know and present on this on on you know and bizarre conferences as well like well not bizarre at all great but you know not necessarily just on women so you know i went to a great conference in 2001 um, on the back of a thesis on in on color in antiquity because i'd written a whole chapter by that point uh, well i finished my phd but then there's a whole chapter for instance on, on veiling and color so what does you know what how do we think about color coding in the mm. ancient world what do garments or color tell us you know we think about um the greeks and the romans going around in white bed sheets all the time but that's absolutely <laughs> not the truth you know they were yeah. they were multicolored as as we are so i look at the, a lot of the symbolism of of the red veil for instance there's a lot of stuff on, on on veils which are red and purple and of course all of that has to do with blood um and female blood from menstruation but also female blood from um from the loss of virginity as well so red veils were used in the the very complex wedding ceremonies that the Greeks undertook and this ritual called the anacalypteria the 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 ritual unveiling of the bride um where the bride in ancient Greece you know it wasn't like we have today you know bridezilla and all this kind of thing about you know it's my day it's my day I need to be the center of attention the bride was the last thing really uh, at her wedding which took place over five days she was completely covered you didn't see her face at all in a red veil she was moved around by the wrist dragged around from one house to another and she sat there and at one moment this pivotal moment the veil was lifted so that her husband-to-be could look in her face for the very first time oh, and then wow. she was given a, a ritual drink probably of wine and then she was reveiled again only to be as it were unveiled later on in the privacy of the bridal chamber where her virginity was taken. Uh, and this is an, another form of this anacalypteria, this unveiling of the bride. So there's a co correlation in medical texts I had to look at, for instance, where the word, you know, the word for hymen was credemnon, again, or, or, oh, wow. or calyptera. Yeah, yeah, so all of on medical texts were all there. So, so, you know, I had to look at loads of stuff. Um, so I go through, I plow through medical texts to find words for membrane, calyptera, columna, but sometimes it could be the membrane of a fish or whatever, you know, and lots of stuff I had to disregard. Yeah. But then you see, but by doing that, being so thorough with it, that's when the gems come out as well. That's when you find a text that nobody's looked at before, you know, and I found lots of those, I'm glad to say, loads that and loads Eureka moment. <laughs> yeah, quite literally, Eureka, it, it really was that, yeah. So I, think, so I do have a particular question, um, coming yeah. back to the kind of core of your um, dissertation. Um, in terms of, you've obviously mentioned um, the the concept of the more covering they had, the more power almost, because the more freedom, sorry, because they were yeah. able to be seen in, in the public sphere, especially in the Hellenistic period. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like day-to-day -day house life, like when they were behind their own house life as the mother, um, what? how did it work then? Was the veiling just in a public sphere? Yes, um, that's right. So, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. So so the the home itself, the oikos, is the woman's sphere right and there was mm. a big demarcation in the greek mind between you know the outside which is the male sphere and the inside we know we we don't even know in athens for instance that that women did shopping okay it's something that you know we've always considered in western history that's what women do they go shopping for the food actually the evidence suggests that men did the shopping even all of that okay so the it, the women's space was was the heart was the home that's that's what it was men coming if men came into that house if they were wealthy enough, that family were wealthy enough, they would have an andron, quite literally a man's room. So that's where they would go. And the house was for the women, you know, male visitors, unrelated blood kin didn't go in. However, if unrelated men were brought into the house, the women had to move to the back of the house. They had to move away from the, say, the sunny courtyard where they could do the weaving and the cooking, and they'd have to go into the back of the house as well. But really the, the veil becomes an extension of the home. So the woman takes that with her. Oh, wow. So when, yeah. I, when, I, when I published my the thesis as, as my first ever book, 
um, which was published um, in 2003. Um, I changed the title from the, the rather earnest Women Unveiling in the Ancient Greek World. And uh, the book is called, still available in good bookshops, um, <laughs> Af Aphrodite's Tortoise, The Veiled Women of Ancient Greece. Why? Uh, because I discovered there's this, there's this wonderful statue of the goddess of sex, Aphrodite, um, created in the fourth century by Phidias. And um, she stands with her foot on the back of a tortoise as though she's subduing the tortoise. So what on earth is this about? Okay, so I looked and looked and looked and I found references to it by Plutarch and by Pausanias, who say that Aphrodite, of course, is the goddess of great sexuality. She's, she's woman in her most primal form. She stands on the tortoise because the tortoise symbolizes um, women staying at home and being silent. And the Greeks believed that, that all tortoises were female, that they, they, they self-generated, so there were no male right. tortoises. And also they believed that they were silent. They're not. Um, right. neither, of course, are they, are they one sex, you know? Yeah. Um, but in, in the mythology, for instance, um, Apollo kills a tortoise and takes his, his shell to make his lyre. So the tortoise only gets a voice when it is given a voice by the gods, by, by, by a man as well, okay? So as a, as a symbol of, of staying at home, okay, literally within your shell, taking your house with you, and of being silent, the tortoise was the ultimate paradigm for, for what a woman should be. Uh, and this is why Aphrodite tries to crush it. You know, that's yeah. a bad representation of Aphrodite. That's so says. interesting. And it's also really interesting, isn't it, that with Aphrodite, because, you know, she forms a, a quite a core part of the, of the thesis and certainly of the book, um, it's no coincidence, I think, that um, we first see her depicted as naked in sculpture in the fourth century BCE, just at the moment when her real women, her adherents, were actually veiling themselves more conspicuously. So as kind of they cover up more, she undresses more as well. Yeah. So there were really strange dichotomies going on. Um, in the, in our understanding of that, it was really really fascinating to see. Yeah. So yeah, you see, it even took me into zoology and into yeah. art history and all of There's this. There's so much to it, and it, it, I think that is the great thing again about thesis. And obviously, you've gone on to do so much more work, and uh, we won't discuss your book too much because you know people should go and read it themselves. Um, but <laughs> but it, it is so fascinating that step. Um, again, this isn't about your particular thesis, but in terms of your experience as an academic, how was that step up to writing your own book was it did you use your thesis as the backbone or did you kind of go for it you know with a, a new um drive the thesis was the backbone but um of course what 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 needs to happen when you when you publish even though you want it to be still you know this is this was a monograph that was intended to be read by other academics you know i i wanted it to be part of the discourse on gender and identity and Greek culture from here on in, which I'm glad to say it has become. So there was a serious intent to it. I didn't want it to be a light read, as it were. I wanted it to be scholarly and, and everything yes, to be there. Yes. But in a certain way, of course, you, one has to um, de-thesize it in yeah, a way. Make right? it accessible. It, yeah, it, it can't just read, you know, you can't just print your thesis again because, well, you know, there's stuff that needs to be cut. Publishers don't want doorstops of books you know you've got you've got to be more economic um in the in the way, way you approach it now i was really again you know uh, fortune has been on my side so many times i was lucky enough to to first of all get a job um before i submitted i got my first teaching job and that was for the open university and um the person who gave me the job professor lorna hardwick i mean she was wonderful she said look take take six months before you start properly i was being paid Wow. take six months and and write up the book okay i'll give you i'll give you some time to do it which was just a godsend and then the other thing you know which many people just don't get these days i was so so lucky again that's and that importance other, of academic not just yeah, the value of a degree yeah. oh yeah. honestly absolutely and, you know and being in that so jealous <laughs> <laughs> you'll get there you will and then there's then there's this uh, other process you know where you need a good editor you need someone to work with and I was so fortunate again that uh, Dr. Anton Powell, a very dear friend who sadly died last year, great, great loss to us. He um, was the, the editor of the Classical Press of Wales, which is one of the major um, classical presses in the world. 
he had already published a, a book that I had edited um, two years earlier, which was the result of a conference, which I did on, on women's dress in the ancient Greek world, where I had you know, major speakers um, come. So he knew my work and he asked if he would, could publish Aphrodite's tortoise for me. So immediately I agreed. And you know, the care that he lavished on that manuscript was, was remarkable, you know, um, and, and teaching me every step of the way how to make it a, a good book. You know, it's been a good PhD, now it needs to be a, a good monograph. And, and he very carefully took me through the whole thing. There was quite a lot of rewriting to do in the end. Um, not, not, and nothing to do with the factual stuff, but the, just the way that the tone of presentation, you know, you want to, to draw people in, um, you, yeah. you want to give them an argument. And really, um, it's that. And some advice I got from my very best friend, still my best friend in the world, Frian Morgan. I asked her when she when I finished my PhD just to read it, you know, as, as you know, as it is. Okay. So it's about this is about maybe four months before I was going to submit. And uh, <laughs> she came back to me and she said, um, it's really interesting, but it reads like plain chant. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? And she said, well, it's all like da 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 God, it does. <laughs> so I went away and I rewrote the whole thesis to begin with. Wow, okay? wow. Yeah, yeah, within four months. And then Anton took it, you know, after it had been vivid and passed, and I should say without corrections. And then uh, Anton did, did a wonderful job then of, of doing this. And really it's between the two of them, okay, that I have, I have formatted my own style of teaching or working with my PhD students, you know, one thing I always say to them is, when you finish a chapter, read it out loud to yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's so listen, funny. How many listen, of them know listen, the original yeah, reason for you know, that? Yeah, I think Re that's the sign to, of a listen, listen to the sound. Yeah, yeah, that's the sign of a very, very good friend that will firstly read your whole thesis because that oh, is no indeed. mean feat. It's and no then mean to feat. tell you, um, sorry, I, I think you I, might want to rewrite the whole thing. You know, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. comical, but. But it was wonderful. It really yeah. was. I mean, a great help. So yeah, so there is a process to go through. I mean, one of the things, you know, my thesis is all the, um, all of the texts I used, I used in Greek, you know, I, I, I put in the Greek text, and then I put translations into footnotes, all of that had to turn around, for instance, you know, so that just like cutting and pasting big, itself yeah. is a big job to do, you know. Um, mm. So there's there's lots of mechanical things you have to do, but also there's some restructuring that you have to yeah. do. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear about the whole process. And um, I think just to finish up, I think if we're able to talk about the conclusions you made, um, obviously you have highlighted a lot of them already, but in terms of your thesis itself, this is this and that. Sticking back to the, it's so easy to get, <laughs> I want to ask you so many questions, but if we can just return to your PhD and um, the conclusions you did make um, to finish off the episode that'd be great yeah so um, what did I say well I said that first of all we have to acknowledge that ancient Greece was a veil society that's the yeah. term I used a veil society and that the veiling of women was routine and it was an ideology which was imposed and endorsed by men but probably adhered to by most women in Greek society as a daily practice, when at least when they went outdoors or they mixed in the company of strange men, but that it wasn't without meaning for the women themselves. They could negotiate it. One of the things I found, for instance, is that the harshest critics of women who didn't veil correctly were other women, for instance. Wow, you know? yeah. They could actually be far more um, um, vicious um, to their sisters than than men. Okay? The veil so can't really just be used as a symbol of the patriarchy. It's, no, no, it's, it's far, far more, more complex. complex than yeah, that. far, far, far more complex. And nowadays, you know, it's also wrapped up in identity as well. You know, as today, as as, as a Muslim woman, as uh, as a Turk, as an Iranian, whatever it might be. You know, there there are layers and layers and layers going on here. It was kind of weird sometimes for me as a man working on this most female of subjects. Definitely. Um, but I didn't let it stop me. And I tried to do as much kind of 
face-to-face um, -face research as well. I remember I used to live in Grangetown and I was standing at the bus stop once and I had really lovely neighbours and they were a Muslim family and the girls always um, veiled when they came out. I used to see them in the back, you know, and they wouldn't veil. And one day we were standing at the bus stop together and I said, look, I, I hope you don't mind. Why, why do you, why do you, you know, why do you cover your head with a veil? And they just looked at each other and they thought, oh, they said to each other, Oh, we don't know really, probably because we're Muslim. <laughs> and that was really? all they never wow. even thought of it at all. Yeah. Others others really do think of it, you know. Mm. And I discovered that there were there were Muslim um uh, feminists, for instance, who who endorsed veiling because they saw it as as empowering as well. And I think that's a rhetoric that we've heard quite a lot. Mm. And it's recently. fascinating because that goes right back to, you know, a thousand BC in Assyrian, yeah, like you said. And, and I think that sums precisely. up so perfectly, you know. Um, there is far more to it. And um, absolutely. And I think what, what the, the biggest thing I saw in the whole thesis, I suppose, was the way in which the two worlds of, of male ideology and female life experience could um, collide and converge. So in, ideologically, the veil was a barrier there to sort of protect the public world from the miasma of women. But in practicality, it also allowed women to negotiate an all-male space with some modicum of, of freedom, you know, in which they could, you know, do domestic, well, do things beyond the, beyond the hearth and, and, and home, I suppose. Um, I, really interestingly, I mean, the, the, the book has been well received, very well received, and it's been called, you know, a, um, a sort of staple of, of, of gender studies, which is really gratifying. But where it's had its, its biggest influence is actually in France, um, wow. where um, a very um, senior scholar called Pierre Brulet, um, he wrote a, a major um, review article on it. I mean, it was something like a 50 page review article wow. uh, in, in which, you know, and he, he's a big expert in, in, in Greek women and Greek gender ideology in which he said, you know, this is, this is the book that we're longing to see. And uh, in French, he says, you know, thank you for unveiling our eyes to this, which is a lovely way to do it. But why has it gone down like that in, in France? Because of course, France is, was and still is very much locked in the veil debate you know, yeah. at the time, um, you know, um, school girls, for instance, were, were um, told that they couldn't wear veils to school, you know, because as a secular country, you know, it's, it's not acceptable. So this really touched a nerve for, for French scholars um, in particular, and it's had translations in, in, into, into French as well, um, and also pa paperback versions too. So you know there are societies where where this kind of stuff still matters and the resonance more. Is still and I think I think yeah. it'd be fair to say it matters everywhere, of course. But uh, like you said, it has highlighted a very serious and topical debate in France. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and that's really fascinating, actually, how it was received yeah. there. Um, and I'm sure in other places you can tell what's going on in the country on how the research is received. Yeah, most definitely, yeah. most definitely. Interestingly, the place where it hasn't received. Um, any note at all is in my most beloved country, and that's Iran. You know, I work a lot okay. on Persia, Iranian stuff, and it's never received a Farsi um, translation, which is strange because all my other work has now. Oh, and, wow. Uh, okay. The, the place where actually the government forces women to veil, and there's mm. much hostility to, to it, um, it hasn't received any. Uh, any publicity there which is really that, fascinating that is fascinating again well it has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for giving me your time and um i've it, it's done what it says on the tin i've learned so much today um and uh, yeah thank you so much uh you're very welcome i've enjoyed it enormously and good luck with the rest of the series great Brilliant. idea thanks very much bye now you've been listening to this and that all other episodes are available via spotify and other podcast streaming services Make sure to follow Express Chill on Instagram for any updates.